Yes, we're open. Living Faith with Needham UCC, a sermon podcast from the Congregational Church of Needham United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you're invited and welcome. Our sermon for this Sunday, January 12th, 2023, is entitled Trickle Up. It's part of our Year W project, spending a year listening for the voices of women, girls, and the divine feminine in Scripture. Guided by the work of Hebrew Bible scholar, the Reverend Dr. Wilda C. Gaffney, in her A Women's Lectionary for the Whole Church. Our reading today is from the New Testament, from the Gospels, from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 4, verses 16 through 27. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to find out more about our open and affirming ministries at the Congregational Church of Needham, United Church of Christ, simply head over to our website, www.needhamucc.org. Thank you. In our scripture reading and sermon today, we continue with our Year W project, spending a year Advent to Advent listening for the voices of women, girls, and the divine feminine in scripture, guided by the work of the Reverend Dr. Wilda C. Gaffney and her lectionary for this project and her translations for us. I know your bulletin says we have two scriptures, but we have just one today. We're reading today from the New Testament, from the Gospels, from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 16, excuse me, chapter 4, verses 16 through 27. So let's listen together for a living word from God in these words from Luke, chapter 4. Now Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been nurtured, and went, according to his practice on the day of the Sabbath, to the synagogue. And he stood up to read. Then was given him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the most high is upon me because God has anointed me to get to proclaim good news to those who are poor. God has sent me to preach liberation to those who are captives and a recovery of sight to those who are blind to liberate those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Most High's favor. When Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down to teach. And every eye of all in the synagogue looked intently at him. Then he began to speak to them, saying, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is not this Joseph's son? Then Jesus said to them, of course, you will all quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you all will say the marvelous things you have heard. We heard you did at Capernaum. Do them here in your hometown. And Jesus said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in their hometown. But I speak truth to you all. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, the prophet, 
when the heavens were closed three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, rather to Zarephath in Sidon to a widow, widow woman. And there were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Friends, God is still speaking to the world and to us. May our hearts be open to listen, feed on them by faith, and do God's work in the world. Amen. I have found over many years of ministry that when we read the Gospels, you and I, there is a temptation to want to identify with Jesus. A temptation to want to see ourselves and to be seen standing with Jesus and not with those who misunderstood him and even opposed him. That's only natural. It's only natural, I suppose, given that we in the church are team Jesus, or at least we're wearing his colors and chanting his name. Of course, that presupposes that we actually do understand what Jesus was doing and saying, and that we actually don't oppose the gospel way he came to show us, which I want to put this out there is not a given, even for the church. Yet in our rush to join the winning side, we, we risk pointing an accusing finger at others in order to deflect suspicion from ourselves. Oh, you know we love you, Lord. We, we get you, but those people, those Pharisees, they don't. But we can't use Pharisee as a metaphor for, at best, foolish unbelievers and at worst, enemies of God, without ending up indicting actual Pharisees and, by extension, actual Jews. And sadly, the world is still acting out the deadly consequences of the anti-Jewish sentiment the church has continued to fuel this way in harder and softer versions for nearly 2,000 years, despite, despite the fact that Jesus was Jewish and his gospel inextricably bound up with his very specific Jewish faith. So there's that. Additionally, by claiming, dare I say, pretending that we understand Jesus, we risk glossing over important questions and important answers, as in our reading for today from the Gospel according to Luke. At the very beginning of Luke chapter 4, we're told that Jesus begins to preach and teach and manifest the love of God in healing and miracles throughout the region of Galilee. But in Luke's account, his first recorded sermon is in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. When asked to select a scripture for teaching, Jesus asks for the book of Isaiah, and particularly that bit where the prophet proclaims that God's love is good news to the poor, liberation to the captives, vision for those who so desperately need it, freedom for the oppressed, and favor for all those who are disenfranchised. Now, given Jesus's negative 
reaction to the crowd and their negative reaction to him, they will end this very episode trying to kill him. The church's historic interpretation of this story has tended to characterize that crowd as a bunch of Jesus haters from the jump. They just don't get Jesus like we do. Isn't God lucky to have us? They're too wrapped up in their love of law and all too common anti-Jewish slander to see that the gospel is about the law of love. And by implication, of course, if we had been there, we would have done better. But when we oversimplify things that way, we miss the little stumbling blocks that are built into the story, the glitches in the matrix that point us in another direction, one perhaps uncomfortably close to home. Did you catch that in the reading? How does the crowd react to this teaching from the prophet Isaiah? Not where do they end up, but where do they start out in reaction to Jesus? What do they say? Luke tells us that all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words that came from his mouth. The crowd loved what Jesus had to say and and they believed it. After all, it wasn't all that new. Jesus was reading to them from within their own familiar prophetic tradition. Now, the members of First Synagogue Nazareth don't get upset because Jesus says he has come to fulfill the messianic promises of the prophets and to bless the world with justice, peace, and compassion. No, they're, they're impressed. They're proud of him. They're impressed with his confidence and the power that radiates through him, the marvelous stories they've already begun to hear about his ministry. They're proud of Joseph and Mary's son, their very own hometown prophet. They don't even get upset when he articulates a vision of a world where believers and non-believers, Jews and Gentiles alike, are blessed together. Again, the prophets of scripture have said as much over and over and often. So, so far, so good. This they like. But then Jesus goes on. As we say in Texas, he left off preaching and went to meddling. Of course, you will all quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you all will say the things we have heard you did at Capernaum and in all these other towns. Do them here in your hometown. But truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in their hometown. Maybe because the work of the prophet is exactly this, to leave the comforts of home. And to leave those comfortably at home who are there already in order to preach and enact and embody good news for those outside the circle, outside the walls, on the edges, on the margins, those whom the home team considers the lowest and least, even enemies, and treats accordingly. I believe that that is what gets the hometown crowd at Nazareth so upset. 
upset enough that they will try to throw Jesus to his death from their shining city on a hill. What gets them so upset is when he says he won't bless them, his own hometown folks, friends, and neighbors first and most. Bless anyone you want, Jesus, but start with us. Tend to us first. In God, Jesus' God doesn't do that. The God of the prophets doesn't do that. God doesn't play favorites. God's love doesn't start at the center and eventually work its way out to the edges if there is enough time and energy left over. God's grace doesn't start at the top with the familiar, the safe, the already beloved and lovely. And then eventually maybe trickle down, down, down to the bottom. As Jesus reminds his hometown crowd, the prophet Elijah left home to show the saving love of God to a widow of Zarephath in Sidon, a Gentile, a woman. She and her little orphan boy, hungry and hopeless, dying in poverty. The prophet Elisha went even further in some ways and healed a Gentile general in the enemy army of the Syrians with whom the kingdom of Israel was already in conflict. And the prophet Jesus, in Luke's account of the gospel, Jesus spends his entire ministry expanding, exploding, the everyday idea of who God is and how God works and what God loves and who. Jesus continually reaches out to those on the margin, not to bring them into his hometown, but to make his home with them as God does with lepers and tax collectors, women and children, all of those considered lowest and least in his day. In fact, he even has his own learning experience with his own Gentile widow woman who he first calls a dog before seeing the love of God in her as well. Eventually, in Luke's gospel, Jesus will be crucified on a hill far away, on a shameful cross, with his very last breath offering paradise to a legally, rightfully convicted thief. Imagine how different the church would look if we understood ourselves not as God's hometown favorites. Good people, even willing to invite just about anyone in to try on our team colors, to play our games. And instead understood ourselves as prophets, healers, revolutionary accomplices sent to the people out there on the edges, the ones with the targets on their backs, black and brown folks, the poor in every time and place, to women whose bodies are being policed, to queer folks and transgender folks, to immigrants, 
whose very lives, all of these people whose very lives are being legislated away. And not just the capital C church, generally speaking, but our church, this little C church specifically. Imagine how different we would be in here if we reversed the flow and didn't just tolerate difference, but actively pursued it and made our home there. Imagine how much of a difference we could make out there for folks who really need to know, not that they're welcome in here, but that God is already on their side. Imagine how different our country would look. If we abandon the from the inside out, from the top trickle down approach that has shaped our political and our economic life for generations, and which, let's be honest, has never worked out the way it's been sold to us. Yes, this nation has generated more wealth than any other nation in the history of the world in large part due to the continuing legacy of 250 years of unpaid slave labor, yes. But what about now? What good is it when that wealth penetrates only the top percent of a percent of a percent of our people? When corporations are making record profits and executives making record salaries, while people on Main Street struggle to pay their bills, to put gas in their tanks, to buy eggs. When even in a time of a pandemic, healthcare is still a corporately controlled privilege, not a human right. Healthcare and education and even clean water to drink coming out of the tap not just in Flint, but in places we're waiting to discover that problem across our nation. When voting rights are being rolled back, particularly in majority-minority communities, representation being gerrymandered away, and democracy sold to the highest bidder. When we're encouraged by advertisers and elected officials alike to see life as a competition, a race to the top, a war, which only a very few can win, proving their worth. Instead of life being a team task, a group project, a community, a commonwealth, not a kingdom, but a kingdom. And when God help us, lawmakers keep passing legislation to keep it that way and make it worse. What shall it profit a nation or a church if we shall gain the whole world and lose our soul? But what if the gospel always asks that question? What if? What if we didn't just claim the name of Jesus, but followed his way? As a nation, what if we craft policies and pass laws that secure the welfare of the poorest among us first, that safeguard the rights of minorities first, 
that really are good news for the poor, liberation for all held captive in body, mind, and spirit, relief for the suffering, and freedom for the oppressed, that really do lift the lowly first, because we believe that is the only way that all boats are ever going to rise. As a church, what if we understand our calling, especially as an open and affirming church, to be about more than just welcoming others to join us here on Sunday mornings, though that's nice, but to be about going out there Monday through Saturday, to listen to the lives, the joys, and concerns of people radically unlike ourselves and then advocate for justice on their behalf, whether they ever darken our door or not. The gospel calls us to move beyond extravagant welcome to extravagant justice. That's more than nice, that's good. Despite what you may have been told, the gospel of Jesus Christ is more good than nice. The members of First Synagogue Nazareth figured that out in our story today when Jesus left off preaching and went to meddling. And they didn't like it one bit. Friends, another world, a better world, really is possible but only if we seek to build it another way. We, like the Magi, are called to leave the place of death where we have found ourselves and make our way home by another way. Lucky for us, Jesus shows us that way. But we're going to have to do more than claim his name. We're going to have to do more than show up wearing our team jerseys on Sunday morning. We're going to have to leave the comforts of home, even our church home of many years, to follow where he leads. But that way lies the kingdom of God. Not by and by in the sky, but here. And now, where people need it and where we need to build it. And so, beloved, if you have heard a word from God preached here today, remember to give all honor and glory to our one God, Creator, Christ, and Holy Spirit. Amen.